The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. here at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. We begin with two big banks set to report their results today. But investor attention continues to focus on the regionals and those firms that are still reeling from those massive customer withdrawals. And Apple, it makes a major push into a new key market with its retail store in India. We are live on the ground with a look at what that could mean for the stock. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis not losing to Disney without a fight. Teasing new legal measures to strip its Orlando autonomy once and for all. Plus, the Chinese EV maker not being drawn into the ongoing price war in EVs. And then later, Elon Musk details his chat GPT rival, one he calls Truth GPT. Plus, some choice words from Microsoft and for Google. It is Tuesday, April 18th, 2023, and you are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning and welcome to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Frank Holland. Let's kick off the hour with a look at the markets and your money. You look at the check at U.S. stock futures right now. You can see here they're most modestly higher this morning. This comes after a day where we also saw some modest gains in the market. Okay, we're also watching bond yields this morning, as we always do. Really important to watch here is the two-year note. Yield still above 4%. Also, the 10-year. We're looking at the yield at just about 36 this is a pretty big bounce from its year-long low that happened earlier this month of about three and a quarter, seeing about a 30 basis point move to the upside when it comes to the benchmark 10-year right there. We're also looking at oil right now. Oil just a little bit down this morning, down slightly. We're seeing it down just about a half a percent for both WTI and Brent crude. WTI at about 80 and 50 cents a barrel. Brent crude at about 84 and a quarter a barrel right now. So this is coming after oil saw its worst day since mid-March yesterday. And, of course, we also watch the crypto markets. We're seeing Bitcoin and Ether this morning um, up very, you know, almost a percent across the board here. But the key thing here is that Bitcoin, it remains below 30,000. Ether now above 2,000 after that upgrade. So we continue to watch the crypto markets. Plus, we're also watching a few key stocks this morning, including Apple, of course, opening its first retail store in India today. Much more on that, plus a live report from Mumbai coming up. We're also looking at shares of Alphabet still reeling after a more than 2% loss yesterday on reports and may lose out to Microsoft as the default search engine on Samsung's mobile devices. You see the big drop right over here when it comes to uh, Alphabet stock on that news down fractionally this morning, however. And as we await results from Bank of America and Goldman Sachs today, we continue to watch other key names in the space, including State Street, reporting nearly $12 billion in outflows this year during earnings yesterday. You see the big drop when it comes to State Street. Uh, right here, right here, down seven and a half percent, making it the worst performer, the worst performer in the index by far, dragging down peers like BNY Mellon and Northern Trust. OK, time to get international. Let's check on the action in Asia and the early trade over in Europe. Our Juliana Tattlebaum is standing by in our London newsroom with much more. 
Hey, Frank, good morning. Well, kicking off with Europe, we've got green across the board. European equities uh, moving higher today. After a sluggish day of trade yesterday, the stock 600 ultimately ended the session flat. But as you can see here, it is a broad-based rally. We're seeing particularly strong demand in the banks. The banking sector in Europe is leading the charge higher within the stock 600. European investors reacting to some fresh data out of China overnight. The world's second largest economy is showing signs of recovery. GDP in China accelerated to 4.5% in the first quarter, its fastest level in a year, driven largely by strong demand from consumers. So strong uh, data point out of China overnight. Fairly muted reaction in the Asian stocks. You got the Shanghai Composite up just about two-tenths of a percent. The Hang Seng in Hong Kong pulling back by about six-tenths of a percent. We have had some signals building over the last couple of weeks around this China recovery. LVMH in the luxury space at the end of last week delivering a strong set of Q1 results driven by that domestic Chinese consumer. So perhaps investors already braced for what was going to be a strong reading. Now in the banking sector, UBS says it will make changes to its $6 billion share buyback program in the wake of its acquisition of Credit Suisse. The Swiss lender has announced it will now use some of the shares for the takeover rather than canceling them as originally planned, but it still needs to get approval from the Swiss takeover board. And here's a look for you at UBS shares. They're up about 1%, but as I said, we are seeing strong gains across the European banking sector. So UBS, just one of the many. Frank, back over to you. Certainly a lot of banking news today. Our Juliana Tattlebaum live in London this morning. Juliana, thank you. All right, time now for a check on this morning's top corporate stories, including Disney's political battle with Florida showing no signs of letting up. Our Silvana Hanau is here with that story and many others. Good morning, Silvana. Hey, Frank, good morning to you. That's right. So Florida Governor Ron DeSantis unveiling a new legislative push targeting Disney that, if passed, would nullify an 11th hour agreement the company made with the state appointed oversight board just a few weeks ago now. DeSantis says details of the new bill will be introduced next week. Along with his legal push, DeSantis also floating the idea of developing lands around Disney's resorts, including possibly building a private prison. Ford says it will import its next-generation Lincoln Nautilus from China to the U.S. The SUV is currently produced for the U.S. at a Canadian plant where the company said it will invest around $1.3 billion to transition it to full EV production. And Moody's says global corporate defaults in March hit their highest level since December 2020 in the wake of the collapse of Silicon Valley and Signature Banks. According to the report... 15 Moody's-rated borrowers defaulted on their debt obligations last month. That's up from just six in January, Frank. Yeah, certainly something to watch. We're talking Absolutely. about banks all morning long, Savannah. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. We'll see you later on the show. Sounds good. All right, Savannah, thank you very much. All right, turning our attention back to the markets and a new warning for investors from J.P. Morgan's Marco Kalanovic. And a new note, the chief global market strategist saying that even a mild recession could warrant retesting previous lows, with stocks facing a potential pullback of 15 percent or more. Klonovic adding that tech looks overbought, arguing that unprofitable parts of the sector will not perform and taking a more positive stance on quality good cash flow names. For much more on this, let's bring in Adele Zaman, partner at Wall Street Alliance Group. Adele, good morning. Good morning. All right. So Marco Kalanovic laying out what a, even a mild recession could mean for the markets. He says it could test levels of about 3,500, 3,600, something we really haven't seen since September. Do you agree with his thesis when it comes to the broader market and also on tech being overbought? So uh, we think that at these levels, the positives outweigh the negatives, right? So if you look at, for example, the inflation data, the CPI and the PPI data, 
they're pointing towards that the Fed's medicine is finally taking effect and inflation is finally cooling down. And despite tech layoffs, unemployment is at a historic low of 3.5%. And on top of that, you know, we were recently in vacation in Spain and all the airports and the hotels, they were jammed packed. So the revenge spending and things like travel is continuing at a ferocious pace. And we feel that this reduction in lending is going to mean that the Fed is going to be out of the picture sooner. So we feel that at this point, the positive catalysts outweigh the negatives. And as far as tech is concerned, we think the small tech is vulnerable, but we are constructive on the big tech. Okay. I also want to show the audience some data that I got from you related to big bank earnings. So you say the U.S. has the most banks in the world by a wide margin, more than 4,000. U.K. a close second, more than 300, actually. It's a pretty big disparity there. How does that shape your opinion when it comes to big bank earnings later today, and especially the regional banks? We've only seen about half of them report so far. Yeah, so we we think that the uh, U.S. is overbanked at this level. And, you know, at this stage, we feel that, uh, you know, bigger is the new better. So we feel that the U.S. banking, you know, the U.S. leads the world in the number of banks with over 4,000 banking institutions. And uh, and a, a close a distant second is the U.K. with just over uh, 300. So we feel that the banking industry is going to go through a period of cleansing where some of the smaller banks are either going to go out of business or they're going to get taken over by the larger banks. And also there's going to be a deposit shift, in our opinion, from the smaller banks to the larger banks. So we think that this is actually going to be really good for large banks and this industry is going to go through a period of cleansing, which will be favorable for the big banks. All right. We're also getting some new data from Bank of America. Uh, Bank of America saying $363 billion went into money market funds, third highest month of inflows since 1993. What does that signal to you about investor confidence? So investor confidence, um, you know, the, 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 the government bonds are, uh, and the money markets, they're giving high yield right now. So certainly there's a good alternative in place. But at the same time, uh, you know, we feel that uh, if you take a slightly longer term picture, we see more opportunities in the stock market. So, for example, in big tech, we see a lot of opportunities there. Um, the, a lot of the larger technology companies, they've gone through a period of efficiency where they have laid off workers and their businesses are a lot leaner. So eventually, when the market uh, economy does recover, they are in a position to be able to be more profitable. So where fixed income is giving good yield right now, we also see good opportunities in big tech. All right, I want to correct myself. It's actually Morningstar with that stat about the flows into money market funds. Adele Zaman, great insight. Wall Street Alliance Group, appreciate having you here. Thank you. Thank you. All right, turning now to Netflix, the streaming giant, preparing to report its latest quarterly results after the close today. Our Julia Borston has more on the key metrics that investors should be watching. This is the first quarter for which Netflix has not forecast subscriber additions as the company works to shift attention away from that top line number and more towards the company's financials. That's why the key number to watch is revenue. Netflix forecast 4% first quarter revenue growth with revenue guidance expected to be impacted by two key initiatives. 
First, the rollout of Netflix's crackdown on password sharing with the company's slow introduction of new page sharing options. Bernstein saying, quote, the most important thing the company could do on the call is say something to the effect of the password sharing crackdown in Canada, Spain, Australia is working. We're rolling it out in the U.S. during the second quarter. They say that the stock goes up. And second, investors are looking for more insight into the success of Netflix's lower-cost ad-supported tier, which launched late last year. We'll see if that lower-cost tier drives ad subscriptions, because even though Netflix didn't forecast subscriber additions, investors still care. They're forecasting the addition of 1.4 million new subs. This is also Netflix's first quarter without Reed Hastings as a CEO or co-CEO. We'll see if he makes an appearance on the earnings call in his new role as executive chairman. Frank, over to you. All right, that was our Julia Borston. And we're going to have much more Netflix later this hour and why its botched Love is Blind live event might spell some potential trouble for its streaming sports ambitions. You don't want to miss that. Also, Amy Wool Silverman coming up with the single word that investors need to know today. Uh, RBC Capital's Amy Wool Silverman. She's got to, we'll give you a hint of what her word is. It has to do with regional banks. Plus, Apple makes a new push into India, opening its first retail store there just hours ago with a second plan for Thursday. We've got a live report from Mumbai still ahead. But first, the one EV maker not following Tesla when it comes to the price-cutting war. Our Eunice Yoon is live at the Shanghai Auto Show with a look. Hey there, Eunice. Hey, Frank. Well, Hinton's is a Chinese company, uh, but it is a bit of an outlier because there are about 40 brands that have dropped their prices thanks to Tesla. More on the price war in just a few minutes. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Neo says it will not partake in the China EV price war being waged by the likes of Tesla and Xpeng. Its CEO telling CNBC its products and services are worth the price consumers are currently paying. That price war, certainly an issue front and center at this year's Shanghai Auto Show kicking off today. That's where we find our own Eunice Yoon. Eunice, what's the latest from this key international auto show? Well, Frank, you know who's not here? Tesla. Tesla is not at the Shanghai Auto Show this year, but it's still driving market trends in China. And the latest, as you mentioned, is the price war. Uh, Some would say that strategically, uh, Tesla has been cutting its prices of the Model 3 and the Model Y. But in January, it slashed prices by thousands of dollars. And this, of course, is the mid um, the pandemic when consumption is looking pretty weak, especially car sales. And in fact, about 40 brands followed suit, cutting prices, including Xpeng. This is what Xpeng's vice chair told me about it. 
we actually have been under the Tesla price reduction sort of uh, uh, process for several years now. I think it's actually one provides catalyst for much faster penetration of EV into the wider auto world. That's why actually we enjoyed the process alongside because we are participants in the EV, you know, sort of uh, uh, the pie is getting bigger. At the same time, you know, this cost pressure is going to make us stronger. And Xpeng says that one way that it's going to be stronger is that it's rolling out its own in-house uh, manufacturing platform, which it says is going to be a cutting costs of certain products, um, including, they said, by maybe by up to like double digits for some of these parts. And they're going to be using that manufacturing platform in their new model, the G6, which they unveiled here today. Also, NIO launched its all-new ES6, which is going to roll out in May. NIO taking a bit of a different tactics saying that they aren't going to engage in the price war, but they say that their customers are going to really like their services. Now, on top of that, there are even more new entrants in the EV space. And probably the most significant, Frank, is BYD. BYD is Warren Buffett invested, and they usually are known for affordable EVs moving now into the luxury space. So we're going to see more and more competition for Tesla here in China. You know, Eunice, you really hit on the question I was going to ask you. While these current automakers like they don't want to cut their prices. Are they planning to roll out just lower cost models, as you mentioned, that BYD, the Warren Buffett back company, is known for? Well, NEO says that um, they aren't going to engage for example, in this price war. They said that they think that um, there isn't any need. Uh, BYD uh, hasn't had to really work on that. Although some of the discussion here is that a lot of these new entrants are actually pricing lower. So the price war is being built into the prices because of what we've already seen with Tesla. All right, Eunice Yun at the Shanghai Auto Show. Eunice, thank you very much. Coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, a live report from Mumbai where Apple just cut the ribbon on its first company-owned retail location in India with a second ceremony just two days away. We're going to tell you what Tim Cook told Apple's local faithful there when we return to WEX. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. All right, welcome back. Apple opening its first retail store in India just hours ago with CEO Tim Cook there on site to welcome the first in line. The new 28,000 square foot store in Mumbai really underscores Apple's growing ambitions in India, where its smartphone market share is just about 3 percent. CNBC TV 18 senior anchor Mangalam Malu, he joins us now from Mumbai. Well, you know, it is a moment of cultural importance in a country's history where you have the first Starbucks store opening, the first McDonald's store opening, and the first Apple store opening. One such thing happened today here in India. After 25 years of being in India, Apple finally opened its first retail store here in Mumbai, BKC. And the excitement was palpable. Since morning, we had people queue up. In fact, some of them camped overnight as well. And to welcome and receive them, there was none other than CEO Tim Cook, who opened the doors and uh, was also 
meeting the first few customers who walked in, they were understandably excited and as were the store managers and all the employees, the staff, etc. as well. Some of them also carried the memorabilia. Some of them, I remember, carried, uh, you know, the 1984 Macintosh. Some of them carried a 10-year-old iPod. All of them wanted to get that validated by Tim Cook, autographed, and a bunch of them also got some handmade cards. So Apple was really welcomed here in India. The first Apple retail store, of course, it is uh, just under 2% of the company's revenue right now, but growing at 50% with them increasing their production here in India as well. So that's just telling you how important uh, India is for Apple and how, uh, uh, how, how India loves Apple back as well. You know, earlier I was reading a report where Apple has just 3% market share in India, but India is a value-sensitive market. If you just take a look at uh, the luxury phones market, which is growing at 55%, Apple has a staggering 60% market share there, with Samsung being a distant second with just about 20%. So, of course, where it matters, Apple has uh, both mind share and market share. The excitement was palpable. In fact, the store opened at 11 a.m. And as we speak, it's close to around 3 p.m. in India. The line is still long, as you can see, over 100 meters long. We have a couple of hundred people still waiting to get in, waiting in the sun to get in. Well, are we going to see you later this week in Delhi for the second store opening? Is Tim Cook also supposed to be there? That's correct. You know, so Tim Cook was here in Mumbai as well. The second store opens day after tomorrow in Delhi. Tim Cook's going to be there as well. In fact, yesterday he met with uh, the Reliance Industry Chairman Mukesh Ambani. Uh, sources tell us that, you know, in Delhi he's likely to meet the Prime Minister as well and a lot of other industrial officials as well as government officials. So, uh, for Apple, who has been increasing its production in India, also, you know, the China plus one factor playing out here, uh, it's important that he meets all uh, the senior leaders and the senior industrial out here to obviously talk about uh, the way forward. Two stores opening, my sense is that they will go ahead and open a lot more because uh, of the way they were received here out there too. So let's see how it pans out. India is definitely extremely excited. All right, Mangala Malu, hopefully we'll see you later on this week. Thank you very much. All right, let's talk more about Apple's Thank push you. into India, where it's really struggled in the past to establish a footprint in that market. Joining me now is Tom Forte, Senior Research Analyst at DA Davidson. Tom, great to have you on. Thanks for having me, Frank. All right, so Tom, we mentioned this stat a few times ago, uh, just a few times now. Um, Apple definitely has big plans for India. According to your research, they have about 3% market share in India compared to about 10% market share in China. China is obviously a key growth market when it comes to Apple. How important is the opening of this retail store for Apple to gain market share in India? And it's very important. So when you think about what success could look like in India for Apple, you look to China. So China is the central country for Apple's supply chain. They're starting to ramp their supply chain efforts in India, including for the iPhone. And then they generate about 10% of their total revenue in China versus we estimate about 3% of their sales in India today by selling to consumers. So opportunities over time for Apple to ramp not only its sales to consumers in India, but also its supply chain efforts, and both are very important. So, excuse me. We spoke yesterday. You said that Tim Cook is a CEO by day and he's a diplomat by night. Later on this week, he's going to meet with the Indian prime minister. How important are these efforts to really ingratiate himself, not only to the Indian prime minister, but to the customers there on the ground for the growth of the Indian smartphone market? We were just showing the market share there. Uh, Mengla Malu, our reporter in India, mentioned that the smartphone luxury market is actually growing. Um, Is that an area where Apple can see a lot of growth in India? We're generally we're seeing lower income consumers. 
So the challenge and opportunity for Apple in India is to get an improvement in consumer discretionary spend in the country. So when you think about comparing India versus China, uh, there's more individuals in China today that can afford Apple's product. So as the economy in India continues to grow, and as more consumers essentially grow into the discretionary income that will enable them to afford Apple's products, uh, that's the bigger opportunity. When you think about Apple's efforts in the lower-priced market, uh, they haven't exactly done very well offering a feature-light, uh, lower-priced iPhone. So I think that they're going to need the Indian economy and more consumers to have higher discretionary income for them to hit that 10% of sales threshold that they have in China today. Does this focus on India have any impact on its China business? I mean, Tim Cook's been very clear. They want to grow manufacturing in India and also grow its retail presence. Apple overall has been one of the more successful mega, mega cap tech companies from the U.S. and China. Does this new focus on India, does that change its status in China, not only with the government, but with consumers? So, so you hinted at it before. Uh, this is where Apple benefits from Tim Cook's essentially dual role, a CEO by day, diplomat by night. He's going to have to manage relationships in China as he advances his efforts in India. But yes, among the mega caps, if you were to compare them against meta platforms, Alphabet, uh, Amazon, Apple has done the best job exploiting the opportunity in China. And I look forward to them ramping their efforts in India over time. All right. Tom Forte of DA Davidson. Great to have you on a day like this. Apple opening up its first retail store in India. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Straight ahead here on Worldwide Exchange, your Tuesday morning call sheet. And a check on a few of this morning's biggest upgrades and downgrades by firms you know and stocks that you likely own. Plus, Elon Musk's choice words for the likes of Larry Page when it comes to Alphabet's AI ambitions. And if you haven't already, follow our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, check us out on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast apps. Wex, we'll be right back. Stay with us. It's right around 5.30 a.m. here in the New York City area, right around 3 p.m. in Mumbai, where Apple's opening up its first retail store in India. And we're just getting started here on Worldwide Exchange, here as we're still on deck. We're bracing for another round of big bank results. Bank of America and Goldman Sachs set to report ahead of the open. We're giving the latest look at the health of the financial sector and the American economy. We're going to tee up the numbers that you need to watch. Netflix results also on tap with the performances of password crackdowns, and its ad-supported tier top of investors' minds. And Elon Musk just diving into the AI race, taking shots at frontrunners Microsoft and Google over their early offerings along the way. It is Tuesday, April the 18th. You're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Frank Hollins. Kick off the half an hour with the check at U.S. stock futures. Right now, we're looking at the futures. Green across the board right now at this point, again, very early, the Dow would open up about 50 points higher. Uh, You see the Nasdaq moving higher right now. All right, we're also looking at the bond market, especially the benchmark 10-year. We're seeing the yield on the 10-year, 3.59, kind of a big jump from its year-long low of about three and a quarter, about more than 30 basis points. Also watching the yield on the two-year still above 4%, something we continue to watch in that area. We also want to hit oil with WTI and Brent coming off their worst day in a month. Right now, we see they're both down about a third of a percent. Brent crude trading at about 80 bucks and 50 cents, just ticking up higher as we're talking. Brent crude, the international benchmark at about 84.50, down a quarter of a percent. All right, time now for a check on this morning's top corporate stories, including Elon Musk throwing his hat into the growing AI race. Our Silvana Hanau is back with those headlines. Silvana. 
Hey, Frank, good morning. Yeah, so Elon Musk says he's looking to launch an artificial intelligence platform. Speaking with Fox News last night, Musk says the platform, which he may call Truth GPT, will challenge AI offerings from Microsoft and Google. Musk criticizing those two companies, saying the Microsoft-backed OpenAI has trained its software to lie and accusing Google co-founder Larry Page of not taking AI safety seriously. The Tesla CEO has reportedly been poaching researchers from Google to launch his rival operation now, despite previous warnings about AI risks to society. The trial for the Dominion Voting Systems defamation lawsuit against Fox News is set to begin today. Proceedings are scheduled to start at 9 a.m. Eastern. And in a hearing yesterday, the judge overseeing the trial did not explain why he delayed the start by a day. And there was no mention of reported settlement talks. NEY announcing it will cut 3,000 jobs in the U.S. less than a week after hitting pause on plans to spin off part of the firm into a new company. The company, formerly known as Ernest & Young, saying it is making the move to eliminate overcapacity with the cuts accounting for about 5% of its U.S. workforce. And Frank, a majority of the job cuts will come from the consulting side of the business. Yeah, certainly something to watch. Savan Hanau, thank you very much. Yeah. All right. All right. Now, looking ahead to some earnings after the bell. We're keeping an eye on shares of Netflix as the company prepares to report Q1 earnings after the close. It's the first quarter of results since the streaming giant stopped giving subscriber growth forecasts back in January. Though the street is projecting net ads of just 1.38 million, that's according to Street Account. That's actually an upbeat estimate compared to the 200,000 subscriber loss in the same quarter just a year ago, but still marking the lowest subscriber growth of the year. Investors also looking for insight into how Netflix ad-based subscription service is going, along with how its password-sharing crackdown is impacting subscriptions. For much more on what to expect, let's bring in Alex Kantrowitz, big technology founder and a CNBC contributor. Alex, always great to have you here. Great to be here, Frank. All right, so of course we're looking at Netflix earnings after the bill, but I know you're actually looking at some headlines that came out in mid-February. The, the headlines were the Netflix was cutting its prices in 100 markets, those price cuts about 20 to 60 percent. What do you think that tells us about this upcoming quarter? I think it tells us that Netflix is particularly concerned about churn, that as it's cracked down against password sharing across the globe, maybe it hasn't seen the results that it expected, and it's doing what it can to keep that top-line subscriber number intact. So this, this um, price reduction across the board has been largely ignored. I haven't seen much coverage of it at all. But I think it's extremely significant when it comes to the future of Netflix's business. Yeah, the stock did drop the day that report came out, but we haven't seen that much uh, investor reaction since then. So I'm going to be honest. Uh, yesterday, I kind of laughed. We did a story about the Love is Blind live stream having some technical issues. Um, you know, I don't take reality TV too seriously, but you say it actually may be a pretty big deal for Netflix, especially the way that investors view this company as a tech company. Right now, it's trading at about 29 times forward earnings. Valued as a tech company, could these glitches and these issues not only impact its view as a tech company, but also investor confidence in its plans to potentially have live sports? Absolutely. Look, I think that every now and again, the market has a moment of sobriety around Netflix and says, is this a tech company or is this a content company with the website? It's probably somewhere in, the, in between, but I don't see it as a pure tech company, yet it trades as such. Now, if you can't get a live stream to work, are you a tech company? Right. I think it's important, not exactly for the live business, but just for the narrative of this company. If the market is going to see it as a tech company, it has to be able to pull off a live stream. That's table stakes. 
And if it can't do that, I think symbolically that's not good for this company, especially as you mentioned, we're seeing live sports being uh, starting to, to stream across the board in places like Amazon and YouTube. If they're doing the NFL and Netflix can't do a Love is Blind reunion special live on air, then you start to question its tech company bona fides. All right. So we uh, covered the you know subscriber growth estimates, the company not giving out its own forecast. We're relying on street account estimates. What's the other metric that you think investors need to watch when it comes to this streamer? I mean, let's look at the what the company says on ad revenue. Let's look at what it says on, on password crackdowns. I mean, those are the two things that I'm watching this quarter just to get a sense as to whether these this company's um, our, our ancillary revenue efforts outside of the pure subscription model are working, right? We have to see that there's some progress there to, to um, believe in the story of, for Netflix, to believe that it's going to continue to grow beyond the place that it is today. What do you think about that ad tier? Do you believe that we're going to see signs of early success there, especially with, you know, the threats of a recession, a lot of people trying to reduce their costs? Early success, no. I mean, Madison Avenue doesn't seem to be uh, going for Netflix's ad tier the way that I expected the way that Netflix expected. It also seems to be growing at a slower pace than than we imagined. So I think the advertising play might work over time. But if you're expecting instant results, investors are expecting instant results. I think it's going to be a disappointment on that front. All right. Certainly something to watch. Netflix reports after the bell. Alex Kantrowitz of Big Technology. Always great to have you on. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, we're gearing up for another round of big bank earnings. Christopher Whalen is here. Just to lay out the names he believes are best positioned amid the sector's recent turmoil. But first, as we had to break, some of your top trending stories. My quarterback. This is my personal quarterback. Eagles quarterback Jalen Hurd signing a record $255 million five-year contract extension with the Philadelphia Eagles. The agreement makes him the highest paid player in NFL history with an average $51 million a year. He's worth every penny. Going to the Super Bowl. Also in sports, Hall of Fame basketball star Shaq, Shaquille O'Neal, being served in a shareholder's lawsuit against bankrupt crypto platform FTX. O'Neal is one of several celebrities, including Tom Brady and Steph Curry, who have been served in the class action suit for promoting, quote, a fraudulent scheme. And Amazon is cooking up a public relations project to boost its image in France. According to Bloomberg, the plan is aimed at Frenchifying Amazon, where the company is not as popular as it is in other European markets. It will reportedly combine a dozen sub-projects, including local ads, studies, and events, and was inspired by McDonald's France playbook from the late 1990s when the fast food giant improved its image by adapting menus to French tastes. Worldwide Exchange, back in a moment. Stay with us. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for what we like to call your morning call sheet. This is a segment where we check on a, more, on a few of this morning's biggest upgrades and downgrades by firms you know and the stocks that you likely own. First up, HSBC giving NVIDIA a double upgrade from sell to buy, also more than doubling its price target to $355. The firm saying NVIDIA's AI opportunity more than offsets previous concerns over a data center slowdown and its rising inventory levels. Second, Morgan Stanley's Adam Jonas reevaluating his outlook for Rivian, maintaining his overweight rating, but cutting its 12-month price target to $24 from $26. Jonas says margins and profitability, they continue to be a chief concern, despite his products delivering, quote, serious driving thrills. And third, Cowan raising its price target on Microsoft from $285 to $300 ahead of its quarterly results next week. It says while the latest figures will likely show Azure facing some pressure, 
It sees the issue as a near-term overhang. All right, now turning to big banks and financials. As another round of big bank earnings get underway, Goldman Sachs and Bank of America reporting results before the opening bell this morning, with Morgan Stanley out with quarterly figures tomorrow. So top of mind for investors, deposits this, with the sector's recent turmoil, prompting a flight of funds from regional banks, including State Street, M&T Bank, and Charles Schwab. The outflow sending shares of State Street plunging yesterday and dragging down peers, Northern Trust, and Bank of New York Mellon with it. Joining me now to discuss the big picture is Christopher Whalen, Whalen Global Advisors Chairman. Christopher, great to have you here. Hey, my pleasure. All right, so as we mentioned, two big banks reporting. we got Bank of America, which is like a big retail bank, and then we have Goldman Sachs, which has a huge investment banking business. Which one of these banks will tell us more about the financial sector? Well, if you want to know about banks, you look at Bank of America. Uh, they've seen their cost of funds uh, climbing rather dramatically in the last couple of quarters. And, you know, the, the bottom line is they're a large Main Street bank. They obviously own Merrill Lynch, but they are an enormous uh, store of assets, and they, they keep a lot of their assets. They have one of the longest uh, duration books of all the major banks on Wall Street. Goldman, on the other hand, is trading. You're looking to them to tell you about whether or not they picked up on the uh, bond market rally that really started at the end of the third quarter. And, uh, you know, they have to talk to us about the bank. Uh, David Solomon indicated in February that there was going to be news about their Marcus uh, effort and also their technology platform. So I think investors really want to hear about that. All right. So a lot of people are talking about deposits. You're also looking at credit loss provisions. That's the money that banks set aside for loans that don't work out or don't get paid back. So during the pandemic, Q2 of 2020, the big banks, they set aside $60 billion for those credit loss provisions. And we didn't need it. (laughs) Didn't need it. Okay. How much do you see them setting aside this time? We have worries about a recession. Right. We have worries about the consumer. We have worries just about the banking sector in general. How much do you think they're going to set aside now? And will they need it this time around? Uh, I think they will. It'll be a much more gradual credit build than we saw in 2020 because nobody knew it was happening. COVID, the only benchmark they had was 2008. So they basically did the same thing. This time around, I think they're going to wait and see just how much pain there is on the part of the consumer. And it's going to be a slow build, but it'll still be there. But third, fourth quarter, we're going to be talking about credit instead of deposits. Is there also a Fed impact with the Fed no longer buying bonds? Does that deeply impact these banks? Oh, tremendously. I mean, it's like 1980. It's like Paul Volcker is at the Fed or late 80s because, you know, think about it. You have T-bills at 4%. The banks don't work for 4%. They're working for maybe 1% net once they pay for funding and SG&A and everything else. So it's a really weird time for banks. And basically the Fed is saying to them, raise your deposit rates as fast as you can. That's hard to do. Which obviously hurts net income interest. Oh, yeah, I think you're going to see a NIM squeeze. In other words, funding costs are going to be going up. But until the Fed really starts to sell a lot of the securities in their portfolio, there's going to be a cap on asset returns. All right, Christopher Whalen, certainly a lot to watch. You've got B of A reporting, Goldman Sachs yep. reporting. It's going to be a big day for the banks. Indeed. Appreciate your insight. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. All right. Coming up here on Wax, the one word that every investor needs to know today in RBC's Amy Wu Silverman. She lays out the key stocks that she says uh, they should, should they fall. So goes the S&P with them. And if you haven't already, follow our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, check us out on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast apps. Wax. We'll be right back. 
All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for what we like to call the WEX wrap-up. Six stories you need to know before the opening bell. All right, we begin with Apple opening its first retail store in India with Tim Cook there on site. The new 28,000-square-foot store in Mumbai underscores Apple's growing ambitions in India, where its smartphone market share is just under 3%. A second location is set to open up Thursday in the capital city of Delhi. China says its economy grew 4.5% in the first quarter of this year, driven by strong exports and new infrastructure investments. That rebound, according to government data, was above estimates, calling for a just 4% rise. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis unveiling a new legislative push targeting Disney that, if passed, would nullify an 11th-hour agreement the company made with the state-appointed oversight board just a few weeks ago. DeSantis says the details of that new bill will be introduced next week. Neo says it will not take part in the China EV price war being waged by the likes of Tesla and Xpeng. Its CEO telling CNBC its products and services, they're worth the price consumers currently pay. Moody says global corporate defaults in March hit their highest level since December of 2020 in the wake of the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. According to that report, 15 Moody's rated borrowers defaulted on their debt obligations last month, up from just six in January. And Elon Musk says he will launch his own chat GPT rival. He's going to call it Truth GPT, we think. He was speaking to Fox News last night. Elon Musk accuses Microsoft-backed OpenAI of training that tech to lie. And he also accuses Google co-founder Larry Page of not really taking AI safety seriously. We're also gearing up for the trading day ahead on the economic front. March housing starts and building permits. They're out at 8.30 a.m. Eastern and a slew of earnings on tap. Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Johnson & Johnson, Netflix, and many others. It's also tax day here in the U.S. The federal income tax filing due date for individuals during 2022, as well as the IRS quarterly estimated tax payment due date. All right, getting a quick check on futures right now. Taking a look, green across the board throughout the morning. Seeing it pretty much the same right now. Seeing a slight rise in the Dow and the NASDAQ this morning. As we now head over to our Amy Wu Silverman, our friend from RBC Capital Markets, head of derivative strategy there. Amy, great to have you here. Great to be here, Frank. All right. So, Amy, every day we have Wall Street's brightest minds. We have them share the word they believe will define the trading day ahead. Amy Wu Silverman, what is your WEX word of the day? So mine is going to be pre-positioning, and I apologize if that's technically two words. I, th- I think it counts as one if it's a, a dash. Yeah, if we put a hyphen, uh, well, it's just one word. But you got to so tell it's us it's why. It's a hyphen, right? So I think pre-positioning because, look, Frank, we're still relatively uh, early in earnings season, but these reports that you mentioned that are coming today are really important for financials. They're really important for the consumer. And then they also speak to your old fang names, which has driven so much of the contribution of return to market. So, Amy, you're also watching options right now. So we were just talking about Netflix reporting after the bell. One of the first mega cap tech companies to report this cycle. What's the options market not only telling us about Netflix, but about the triple Qs and other mega cap tech names? So this is something that I'm watching very closely because historically, if you kind of look to the past eight quarters, Netflix is a company that can really move on earnings. This is a stock that has been down 
35% on earnings, for instance. Right now, the options market is implying about an 8% move. You know, that sounds pretty high. But again, if you compare it to what it's done over the last eight quarters, that's actually slightly below. And I think that's interesting because a big theme we've seen since last earnings season is when options markets don't imply that high a move, oftentimes there can tend to be a beat, especially in an environment like this, where rates are sort of surprising people still. What's the options market also telling us about the broader market, the S&P, especially today? It could be a, a pretty big inflection point with both Goldman Sachs and Bank of America reporting. I think it is. And it's interesting because there's been this divergence in the larger cap financials. So your Bank of America's, your Goldman's, and then your regionals. That's not too surprising given what we saw in Silicon Valley Bank. But again, I think the options market has been quite sanguine. So if you get something that is a little bit bad news or a little bit worse than expected, that really isn't being priced in right now. One metric that we look at that skew, we talk about quite often, but it's simply that demand for downside protection. You know, you're not seeing that in the large cap financials. So the market is definitely saying, look, we expect this to be good. We expect this to be similar to what we saw from JP Morgan. And if we disappoint, that pre-positioning isn't there right now. All right. So we're going to go back to your Wex word of the day, pre-positioning. We're seeing a lot of hedging in the options market, according to your data. So how would you uh, tell investors to pre-position today ahead of what could be, again, a big inflection point? So this goes back to those mega cap tech stocks. One thing about this market that is so crucially important is the market breadth Frank has been really poor. So it's, it's, you know, it's again, seven or eight names driving all the contribution of returns. And the problem is there's such large weights that they can drag the entire index with them. So if you would like to pre-position, I do think hedging is attractive. You know, take advantage of the fact that you're getting that bid to the downside and own something like a put spread structure that takes advantage of the fact that that downside is expensive in something like S&P, and you get to pre-position for a situation where very mega caps sell off hard and drags the index with you, you are protected. All right. Any other sectors that people should look out for where you're seeing the options market showing some hedging or perhaps just some anxiety about the direction it could turn, especially for today? You know, I think any read-through you get into regionals, we've been watching KRE and KBE, those two ETFs, very closely because, again, there's been this divergence in what they've been saying and what large-cap uh, banks have been saying. So I think that pre-positioning there is important because they've actually been pricing quite bullishly, uh, but we don't know, obviously, since those earnings are a little bit down the line. All right, certainly something to watch. Amy Wu Silverman from RBC Capital Markets, always appreciate your insight and your Wex word of the day, pre-positioning. Thank you. Thank you. All right, here on WEX, we're also following some breaking news that's happening right now. Jailed American journalist Evan Gershkovich appearing in a Moscow courtroom. We're showing some video from the courtroom right now. He's appealing his detention on charges of spying. Russia's Federal Security Service detained the 31-year-old on March 29th and accused him of trying to obtain classified information about a Russian arms factory. Gershkovich is and the U.S. government strenuously deny those allegations. Uh, again, we're showing you some video right now. I believe we just saw Evan Gershevich just now in a Moscow courtroom uh, trying to appeal his detention. A story we'll continue to watch all day here on CNBC. All right, one last check of the futures right now. As we mentioned, they were climbing a little bit higher just a short time ago. Uh, we're seeing the Dow uh, probably at its highs of the morning right now. The Nasdaq also climbing higher. Green across the board when it comes to the major indices. And that's going to do it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Squawk Box, coming up next.
You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.